Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 99. All right, guys, we are one episode off from our 100th episode. And, you know, usually a lot of podcasts, they just kind of, they they forget that this is a a momentous episode coming up and they're, they're like on episode 101 or 102 and they're like oh yeah we just we had a lot of episodes already and so just kind of the occasion just flies by them and they never get to celebrate in style and so we're a little ahead this time and we would like to st- celebrate in style so i'd like to if you listen to last week's episode you heard me in the beginning talk about how we're wanting you guys our listeners to submit little tips that you use or would tell a new developer so again we have we'd like to get all the tips in by what argo next next week next sunday monday sure that sounds good yeah (laughs) and don't they don't have to be like uh don't use singletons or something like that. They can be they can be fun tips too. So use your imagination. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Don't use a singleton tip, but definitely get put in there. <laughs> I, the... I want some imagination too. If we're gonna if we're gonna air these things, so <laughs> yeah. Well, the first five useful are... tips are good too. <laughs> first five of those people that said don't use a singleton would get in. That's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, so we're looking for. 312 or March 12th as our deadline for getting those in because otherwise we won't, we won't be able to talk about them on the actual podcast itself. So get them to us, make them fun, make them whatever you want. Uh, not too long, but yeah, more than, more than a few words, please. And, uh, you can, you can either tell us how to download those like in our uh, Slack instance, or you can email the podcast with like a Dropbox link or something at shared instance podcast at gmail.com. So yeah, send them to us, send us a link, drive, you know, Google drive, Dropbox, however you share files on the internet, just give us a publicly available link and we'll download it and we will mention who you are and and uh, talk about your tip. So, Argo, you uh, made a purchase on Thursday night, Friday morning. No, I week? actually pre-ordered it a long time ago. Oh, you were yeah, you were fast. <laughs> yeah, so, but you you made a purchase uh, early in the morning. We both got some Nintendo Switches. I guess we should probably talk about that since we've been doing that a lot instead yeah. of coding for the past couple days probably <laughs> if this episode sucks that's it's nintendo's fault yep yeah hello i thought we would talk about it a little bit only because it's it's a very um interesting concept to me in that it's a portable and yet it's dockable and then and it can be or act as a traditional console and that's to me, that that's uh, a very interesting thing. I'm having a hard time kind of uh, 
classifying it in my mind. You know, is it a is it a 3DS or is it more of a, a Wii style kind of thing? Um, how are you using well, yours more? Um, I've been kind of going back and forth, and my uh, so have my kids who have been playing a lot of Zelda as well. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of use it both. I, I feel like it's I don't know. It feels like one of those Android phones where you can like just plug it in and it'll show the the screen and you get like a full computer experience or whatever. But it's like the frame rate gets a little bit worse, at least with Zelda when you are playing it on the big screen. But it's still, I guess it's more useful than one of those weird Android phones. I don't know. How have, how have you been using it? So I've done a mix of both. Um, I actually watch a decent amount of Netflix on my iPad. So to me, holding my screen that I'm consuming content in, in my hand, is not that big of a deal. And, um, if you have a high enough resolution, uh, screen in front of you and you're holding it, you know, arm's length away, it's going to be like a 50 inch TV in a lot of cases, but I had, I do, I do like it on the big screen TV too. And you get you just get more of a richer experience that way with the the surround sound, which is not turned on by default, by the way. Um, it's stereo. So. I need to do that when I plug it into the TV. I don't think I ever did. <laughs> yeah, it was. My brother told me about that, and I was shocked. I was like, stop! Why would they it do seems that? Seems like you would auto detect that, anyways. Yeah. Uh, so what else is new? And <laughs> do you have anything else to say about? The switch um, do we think we're gonna ever see ios devices where you just can dock them into something and they show up on a screen or is that airplay or do we have that already um, it certainly doesn't work as well as just throwing a switch in the dock but right yeah i'm i'm not with apple's idea of this you know the, the desktop os is very different than a mobile OS. I don't think it's going to come from Apple very quickly. I would suspect that maybe Google will do something more in the form of a Chromebook that is also an Android phone since they're in the process of merging those two operating systems together. So I think we'll see it from there, from that side first. And I, and I think if I remember correctly, some Windows Phone devices have flirted with this idea too, but I don't think like ARM on Windows Phone is basically dead. Or I should say Windows tablets is basically dead. So I don't know. Windows Phone's basically dead too. Yeah. So we'll see. I think but we'll see something more from Google first. If you don't have a Switch though, you should definitely get one especially if you're a well mostly just if you're a zelda fan because that's really all that you can use a switch for right now but if you like any of the old zelda games then definitely check it out and if you just like games in general maybe check it out too because zelda is a really good game and they've got more good games coming out so yeah yeah it's a it's a pretty expensive zelda game if you're just gonna buy it buy the console for zelda on its own yeah, a four hundred dollars Zelda game. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So I don't. I don't well, know. 
we'll see how this if this bleeds over in, into PCs and phones in general. Nintendo has definitely proven that you can do something like this pretty well. We could talk about the S3 outage. Do you guys think that's interesting at all or no? Yeah, between that and Cloudflare, I think it's interesting how a couple of services can have such a big impact on the majority of the internet, or at least you know a, a good percentage of the tools and services that we depend on every day. Uh, S3, you know, it definitely makes the argument for creating a little bit of a DR scenario where you can um, manage your app across multiple regions. It only affected the east region, yeah. Um, but that potentially adds quite a bit of cost to your infrastructure. Yeah. Also, it's only been down once in like four years, I think. Yeah. I, so and, and like... I think you know, there's definitely been bigger outages from Amazon and others. Um, you know, S3. You, you saw Slack get a little bit of an impact with the attachments uh, within the app. Um, you know, I think a lot of services weren't completely down um, because they were only relying on S3 for very specific use cases. Oh, we made it our single point of failure. So we were our multiplayer. Well, I guess you could play our single player games, but right, right. our multiplayer stuff was completely down. Um, but yeah, just in case anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, uh, this past week, uh, Amazon's simple storage service, S3, uh, went down for a good five or six hours. Um, and it's been super solid other than this this one day. But I guess some guy uh, made a typo when he was doing some, some maintenance or something like that and basically brought everything down for this one zone of Amazon, like Alex was mentioning. So... Uh, we saw very quickly how many people were using uh, S3. <laughs> like like Alex said, like it wasn't just a couple people here and there. I mean, the whole internet. I think The Verge uh, stored all their images on S3, and they posted something. Maybe I saw it on Twitter. It was basically like, we had some uh, articles that were going to go live today, but the images are very important, so we're just going to hold them off for another day. Uh, <laughs> whereas other people, you know, our apps had stuff that was completely down. It was, it was Trello was down. It was hard to find something that wasn't down, at least somewhere, just because of how ubiquitous um, S3 is. And part of me is like, okay, maybe this is, like Alex was saying... Maybe this is a sign that maybe we shouldn't like depend so much on this third party thing, but the other part of me is like maybe it's the it's it's worth the the price of not having to worry about, you know, that piece of your infrastructure to take that downtime hit every once in a while and maybe maybe you learn some lessons and you can lessen the impact if something like this happens again or be more redundant, but yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like we're just kinda gonna keep on keeping on. Yeah. What about you? What do you guys think? I think the fact that so many companies do depend on S3 that, you know, to some degree it kind of removes that, um, that bad experience, you know, it kind of level sets everybody that, yeah, it's my uh, card game app isn't letting me do multiplayer, um, but 
you know, the tools that I use for my job are down too. So I've got kind of more, more important things to. to well, that's about. why you were trying to play card games at work is because you couldn't do whatever your work thing right, was, right? right. <laughs> I think really for, from our perspective and Amazon's perspective, there's some things we can learn and that's when you build management tools or even any kind of tools to manage your data, you should build in hard limits to, to what can be affected by your commands or your your deletions or whatever. You know, the last thing you want is some kind of data to go to maybe send your app into a tailspin where it deletes your entire database. You know, if you're, you don't want to delete, issue a delete star or a truncate table in a lot of cases, you, know, you, you want to say maybe limit the, the number of records that can be affected by any one command. And that, that's very important for like batch jobs in particular, or um, even in more online processing where maybe you would have a, you're actually keeping track of um, rates of deletions or modifications. Maybe, maybe it would be bad if you had say 500 modifications or deletions per second coming in from your outside events because it it, it's all situational dependent but you definitely want to build in limits to what your tools can do and you don't want them to be all powerful yeah i'm I'm sure they had some fun meetings over at at amazon (laughs) hq yeah uh the day afterwards And I, I could be remembering this wrong, but to some degree, I feel like yeah, this is a a similar scenario to when Netflix realized that they had you know some single points of failure with the, their cloud solution that you know they redesigned their system so if there's a huge outage in, in a large percentage of their infrastructure, they can still function. Uh, without issue and they even have a tool that they run in production to actually test their uh, resiliency it's called chaos, yeah, the chaos, chaos monkey. monkey yeah they randomly shut off services that <laughs> that's just insane that would scare the crap out of me <laughs> yeah yeah but you know not everybody's netflix i mean i'm sure the cost to do that is is pretty significant i mean disaster oh, recovery yeah. which you know classify this as a disaster you know whether it was internally introduced or or uh disaster natural disaster or some external force uh you know the the result is basically the same yeah actually i don't know that they try to keep service 100 percent when this thing is running they they more test how gracefully their system degrades so chaos monkey takes out the uh, last viewed store or something so your watch it again section in the app is gone you, you just don't yeah. see it so it's kind of a prioritization of like mission critical services versus uh, you know supporting services that you know they can have an outage in uh, without it impacting the, the primary function of their of their software yeah and yeah you don't want to get a say a null pointer exception and crash your app because you can't pull up the the, the watch history, for instance. Right. 
And you know, there's something to be learned for our applications as well as if the entire app crashes or you know the app is completely unusable uh, because there's an outage of one dependency. Uh, you know, that's to some degree a design issue that you can work around. Um, if, if everything in your app is server driven, you know, that's, that's a different issue, but you know, the more resilient you can be, if the, if the business need is there, you know, the better. So next on our list of topics for tonight, uh, we want to start a new series uh, over the next several episodes talking about some of the essential features we like to include in every app that we ship to production. So it's kind of our production app checklist and uh, with each episode we'll focus on a single topic and hopefully everybody enjoys the, the topic and, and what we have to say about it. So certainly not every item we mention will be an absolute must for every application, but uh, things that you know, we typically include in every app that we ship. So tonight we're going to talk about crash logging. That's my favorite thing. I love crash logging. <laughs> you know what I, I don't love? Logging into the crash logging site, like Fabric or something, and seeing for the first time that you have thousands of crashes that you never knew existed. Just imagine if there were all these ones that you couldn't do anything about. Those are super fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the reality is apps crash. I mean, it's just... There's no avoiding it, you know, whether it's a bug you introduce or a bug you encounter with the platform or, uh, you know, dealing with upgrades from one version to another, you know, in, in practice, you know, we always discover things that we didn't anticipate scenarios that you just couldn't test for until you were in the, in the real world, uh, with real users and especially a large volume of users. So right. for those that don't know what crash logging is, uh, somebody want to give a quick overview? Yeah. So I think one thing people maybe don't realize is that when your app actually crashes, the operating system will call a registered handler to and give it a bunch of information about what's going on. And basically that handler has a very short amount of time to do something with that information and typically they'll they'll log this information out to disk and then the next time the app starts up when you initialize your your crash logger it will then take that information and publish it somewhere that you're able to get to and typically that's a website um, and then Unfortunately, you get these, uh, you get a symbolicated crash report, which is pretty ugly to look at. So then you, you need a way to what they call desymbolicate that. And whenever you do a build, there are these extra things that get created. Uh, one of those things is a, a set of desims, and that allows you to take the symbolicated crash log and turn that into something that you would actually be able to read as a human. 
Most of the time, anyway. And just to clarify that decent file is your debug symbol. So it's what the re-symbolication process uses to take the kind of scrambled code and turn it into something somewhat readable and uh, trace back to potential lines of code where the crash, or, or at least the stack trace with lines of code uh, that led up to the crash. Yeah, although sometimes you're feeding bad information into an Apple method and that's crashing. And so it sometimes it may look like the problem is down inside of Apple code, but really you're just, you're doing something that you shouldn't do. Or maybe you're passing it a weak reference that's been deallocated already and it tries to call something on you on that reference and dies. Yeah, so most application crashes fall into some pretty common categories. We'll probably not dive deep into that, uh, the details of that uh, with this episode, but maybe something we'll circle back with when we talk about uh, debugging and, and uh, potentially LLVM debug tools. Yeah, I, mean, I know one, although there are like some common quick ones like you know, Objective-C is very forgiving about nils until you try to stuff it into a dictionary or to an array. That'll always get caught by your crash logger. Uh, or the compiler if you're doing Swift, right? <laughs> yes, Swift Swift will catch that. I'll give Swift some props where it's due. <laughs> but it, it is possible to for nils to sneak into your your variables in Swift. It's it's not unheard of, though it's typically when you're bridging from Objective-C. Yeah. So, all right, what are what are some of the more popular uh, crash logging services out there? So, uh, to some degree, everybody gets Apple's crash logging for free. Uh, so through Xcode or iTunes Connect, and maybe just Xcode down, uh, you can get any... I think it's still in iTunes Connect. Is it? Um, it's a little bit, if I recall, if it's there, it's, it's buried like on the product detail page, but, um, downside with Apple's crash reporting is it's purely an opt-in model and, you know, the end user has to agree to share diagnostic data, uh, with the developer, uh, which, you know, on one hand that's great because it's, you know, Apple's going out of the way to protect people's privacy and providing a opt-in model. Uh, but at the same time, you, you could be running, not seeing any crashes, but in reality, you've got a lot of crashes because people didn't opt-in. So it really makes it difficult to troubleshoot an issue if you either never hear about it or uh, you don't have the volume to really uh, encounter it or um, correlate the data back with, you know, devices and OSs and uh, to narrow down to a more specific, specific scenario. Aren't the crashes in iTunes Connect uh, symbolicated too? So you would actually have to download the crash log and symbol desymbolicate it yourself? I, I There's an option, there, or there used to be an option to to not upload your debug symbols, but I think uh, if you upload through Xcode, it always 
includes your symbols. But if you, I think if you still use like some, some of the more tricky ways to uh, upload your app, then there there are ways still to upload them without debug symbols. Is that where you, what you were going to say, Alex? Well, I was going to say if you, uh, you know, if you s stick with Xcode, there's a view where you can get the crash logs within Xcode. Then you don't have to worry about that stuff as as much. As long as, um, and this is where one of the other challenges comes in, as long as the person downloading the crash report also has the archive version that matches up with the debug symbols. So if, uh, if you're building on a, one developer's laptop and pushing to the store and not sharing the, the archived uh, app and metadata, it's going to be uh, impossible for anybody else to Resymbolicate that. I could have sworn, though, I've seen both symbolicated and unsymbolicated crash reports uh, in iTunes Connect. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure they have a mechanism, but quite honestly, for me, it's because of the limitations. I haven't really spent much time looking at what Apple provides. Uh, oh yeah, they're they're not good. One thing that they do a better job at surprisingly than than some other crash frameworks and and they've gotten better other crash frameworks uh reporting frameworks is showing out of memory errors as well that was one thing that uh for whatever reason was not really captured very well uh but i i know crashlytics now has support for showing out of memory errors but yeah in general uh apple's stuff is just garbage for crash reporting so you're going to want to use a third party that gives you much more ability to kind of look at data and even include more data yeah so the only ones that, like that that i've used are uh, hockey app and well old test flight which is now apple test flight and then fabric have you guys used any of the other ones looked into some of the ones that are provided by the analytics packages like uh, Google Analytics. It seems like most of the analytics companies are providing some support uh, these days, but yeah, you know, I think you know what we found is almost everybody uses Crashlytics for, uh, from the Fabric suite. And uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's now a Google product. Or at least it's maintained. It's going to be. Google. It's in transition. Uh, so I don't know if we'll see that be replaced with Fabric uh, mobile services for crash logging, or if it'll stick around as a separate product. So you know, that that would be. A, you know, hopefully they handle that smoothly because there are pretty much everybody I know uses Crashlytics for crash logging. So um, you know, if they decide to just break it, that there's going to be a bit of an uproar in the community. Yeah, that would be bad. Yeah, if you're going to if you're making an app today or anytime, I would definitely just say throw in Crashlytics. That's just kind of like one of those standard things that you're going to do when you start a new project or if you're rescuing some other project. I mean, I think they have the most robust uh way to deal with crashes out there. Yeah, I would say that it's pretty much the gold standard. Yeah, it it can show you 
all your crashes, show them by devices, by version of your app, and even has ways to alert you if all of a sudden you're getting a lot of extra crashes that you're that are unusual for your app. Yeah, it, yeah, they have a nice nice dashboard too for when you release a new app as well that after a certain number of uh, sessions come in gives you kind of like a go no go like yes you had a successful lease or no you didn't and yeah uh you know they, they have their prescribed whatever successful is which may be different from what your successful is but it's still kind of a nice high level way to look at stuff yeah and it you know some of the other things it'll tell you it'll i think it covers device orientation and uh, how much free memory there is so you you know all these things kind of go into uh, giving you a better view of what scenarios are leading to the crash yeah one other thing it shows you is whether the device is rooted and typically well in my experience anyway it, that hasn't mattered too much I, th I don't think most people root their phones into the heavy mods like they used to yeah I, I think it's a pretty rare scenario these days i think the risk you get from uh jailbreaking your phone versus the benefit the, the gap is pretty big now so uh, there's got to be some sort of a mod that is really driving it that that you feel like you can't get live without um, personally i find it a little bit dangerous from a security standpoint because uh, you're circumventing the, the tools in place to protect uh, to protect the system yeah uh, and kind of jumping back to something that Argo was talking about in terms of like setting goals and, and you know there's there's a big difference between getting one crash out of a million or getting one crash out of you know, 300, you know, the percentage of that crash, yeah, probably means you have a more serious issue if it's one out of 300 than one out of a thousand or a million. Um, as likely as you scale up, you're going to see more of those issues. Uh, but, you know, if you have millions of users, you know, it, it may be a scenario that's so rare that you wouldn't necessarily really worry about fixing, especially if it's not a commonly reproduced issue there are definitely some issues that pop up that are over and over that are really apple caused um, those ones are pretty easy to, to spot and, and ignore yeah but it's, it's not so much that we're advocating ignoring issues it's more the the triage and focusing on what's important you know yeah a, a crash that happened once versus a crash that happens uh for every 100 or 10th user uh you, you definitely want to focus on the on the high priority ones and and the nice thing about fabric is it will kind of organize it and prioritize it based on how often it occurs and frequency it's occurring with the latest build yeah my last uh, client we really didn't address any crashes that weren't say 
level four or five, and which meant that I think it had over a thousand crashes per user, or per not per user, <laughs> per per release. Wow. Yeah, per user would be pretty bad. But um, and really, most of the fives we w- we would hit, and then the fours we would just kind of hit as we needed to fill time. And then some of them, some of them are very tricky though. Yeah. I remember when we first put it in there, we saw some pretty hefty crashes and it's like, well, how did somebody even get this to happen? And it, it took some pretty strong gymnastics to make it, make it happen on an actual device. Yeah. It's, it's great when your crash logger can point you to a specific, specific line of code and it's your code and it's obvious, you know, what's going wrong. Uh, but then, you know, you get these more difficult things that, you know, your code is nowhere to be seen in the stack trace and you can't really figure out the steps to reproduce it. Now there's, you know, bringing up a, an example of an app that I worked on I saw the crashes, but you know, I kept trying and trying to reproduce it, and it wasn't until we had an intern uh, doing some QA on it, uh, found out that it was an issue uh, with hitting a button during the rotation of the app, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, something you couldn't really reproduce in the simulator. Uh, not something you would necessarily even think about doing if you haven't encountered an issue like that before. Uh, it's certainly something I think about a lot more now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, crash logging is very helpful, but it doesn't always lead you in the right direction. Sometimes you get misled by the crashes. You know, it's, uh, you know, what it reports may not give you enough detail to really do anything about it. That's where some of the features that Fabric has that makes your life a little bit better because you can capture additional data along with that uh, crash. Like you can capture the user ID if the user was logged in, if that's uh, allowed by your privacy policy. You can also log arbitrary data that, or even steps along the way. Maybe there's a workflow. Uh, you can log some details about that and uh, in theory that will show up with the crash log so it's easier to reproduce yeah that stuff is really useful we use that all the time uh, for my company a lot of i'd say like i'd say like uh maybe 60 percent of our crashes are crashes in a web thread which <laughs> not not in in a, in the main thread or any of my app threads but in a a thread that is some ad that our app is showing, uh, which is super frustrating, but we've been we've been able to uh, kind of add metadata about what ad is showing so that when we see, oh crap, all of a sudden we're getting, you know, all these crashes happening. Uh, oh, look, it's the same. It's coming from the same place and we can turn that off, uh, which has has saved us a bunch from having to just turn off all ads in general which is not what you want to do if that's where you're making your money yeah uh. <laughs> yeah i'd like to go back i would suggest to think twice about uh, logging personally identifiable information in your crash logger 
It's a lot like yeah. anal analytics. Yeah, that information is really not useful. It's more useful at a as an aggregate level kind of thing. Yeah. And you're just you're you, you're potentially putting yourself at risk or your users at risk to put this kind of to put personally identifiable information in your crash logs. Yeah, that's definitely not a not a thing I would do. Yeah. <laughs> that would be bad. Yeah, it's uh you know, login in general, it's it's a little bit too easy to leave debug statements in and uh, that maybe logging out sensitive data. Uh, so you know, there's there's a little bit of a cleanliness checklist you need to go through before you shift the app. Uh, maybe that'll be a topic we uh, cover in another episode. But um, you know, one of the features that Crashlytics added more recently to iOS that they had on Android was the idea of logging non-fatal crashes. So let's say there's an exception that you're handling. Um, and it's a scenario that you expect not to happen, uh, rather than crashing the app, you can log that non-fatal exception, uh, so you know how frequently those things happen. Like, you know, maybe a you know, server couldn't be reached or, uh, you know, something with an API, uh, but you have a graceful way of uh, handling the, the issue. Uh, so so Crashlytics goes kind of above and beyond the typical crash logger uh, but you know it's not for everyone it is a closed third-party system you know you're dealing you have to integrate SDKs and your data is potentially living on somebody else's server uh, you know presumably part of the motivation of, of the team to create the services to be able to collect some data about your app and usage. Uh, you know, I don't know if Twitter ever came out and said exactly what to do with that data, but uh, you know, the, there's definitely a consideration there. Uh, I believe there's an open source solution that's been around since a lot long before a lot of these other tools. Uh, I believe it's called PL Crash Reporter. Yeah. And and I think that kind of predates. A lot of these tools and some of these tools, I think, was built on that uh, early on. I don't know. Well, that was built for Mac OS X. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah, is and that, and it, it may have been, uh, but that's a good point. This is necessarily mobile-specific. Um, you know, if you're building desktop apps, uh, it's relevant for that, too. And uh, some of these tools also support other platforms and React Native or Xamarin or, you know, one of these cross-platform solutions. So that's something to and consider I, as well. And I think it uh, looks like Hockey App, uh, Flurry, and Criticism all use PL Crash Reporter uh, in the background. So you can do different things. I think by default it just lets you send in an email to somewhere, right? I don't know what the default is. Yeah, you know, at very, the very least, these crash reporters have to log the the crash out the disk somewhere and then pick it up then on the next app run which is a another a good point too we ran into this one time using hockey app and uh, fabric together you have to make sure that you're only registering one uh, crash handler because otherwise it's kind of a a toss-up where your crashes are going to end up 
Yeah, we had that issue before where half of our crashes were going into Hockey App. Half of our production crashes, that that is, we're going into Hockey App. The other half were going oh, into no. Fabric. <laughs> That's no good. Yeah. Yeah, not, not too cool. Yeah. So it's just kind of a, you know, we were using Hockey App for beta distribution and internal crashes and then Fabric for external crashes and sometimes releases didn't go through the proper checklist i guess Hmm. yeah not cool not fun you know while we're on the topic of integrating the libraries into your app you know maybe we can uh, talk about the high level steps required to actually do that integration and you know focus on fabric specifically since that's probably the most common that's that's one downfall i feel like is the integration (laughs) well and and you've got some choices now it used to be there was one and only one way of doing it they had their desktop app you had to install and it kind of on one hand it was nice because it would walk you through integrating the the libraries into your app and getting everything set up on the other hand it was kind of a painful thing to do especially you know when you're setting up a new developer you don't necessarily want them to have to jump through the hoops all over again uh, to get the tooling installed and be able to keep it up to date. Um, now there's there's CocoaPod support, so you can just include the pod file or include uh, the libraries in your pod file and it'll uh, add them for you. Yeah, I don't know if there's Carthage support, there, there may be. Um, but with the, with the dependency management solutions like CocoaPods, now are responsible for doing some more of the the work that the tool may have done for you. And you're yeah. specifically talking about uh, adding the build phase to upload the debug symbols, right? Yeah, yeah. You've got to add the build phase, um, which is it's kind of nice. It's it's a command line tool that's calling out to actually upload the debug symbols on every build to the server. Uh, you know, if you have multiple targets, you know that's probably something you want to consider whether you know, it makes sense or not. Like some people will have a different target for different environments or tests versus production versus development. So uh, you might think about how you want to manage that. And maybe it's just turned on for, you know, QA and production or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, You also need to initialize it in the app. Uh, Usually it comes down to a one line uh, code snippet when that you but in the application load uh, yeah, delegate method. Somehow you get some kind of app key into that initialization too. Yeah. And this is where things get a little bit more complicated. You know, they try to take Crashlytics and bring it into this fabric suite of tools, drum one, which is you know somewhat nice because you've got this consolidated uh, suite of tools, but on the other hand, now you've got to include potentially multiple dependencies and uh, the latest fabric integration, you actually have to create a, a slightly more complicated structure in your plist to get the uh, app key into the app, uh, where before you could just pass in a raw string. So you might be able to still do that, but I believe you have to enable Crashlytics uh, within your info plist now uh, with the lid one of the more recent updates hmm. yeah i haven't used a more recent update of that the the client i'm on right now 
actually doesn't have any crash reporting integrated into it. I'm I'm almost afraid of what would happen if we did if we did put it in there. That's super surprising. <laughs> <laughs> oh, half a dozen other analytics packages, but no crash reporting. And one thing that I find with uh, you know, I'm on lots and lots of different projects, so sometimes I can get a little overwhelmed with crashlytics, especially if you have it set to notify you on every event. So one thing I often do with the notifications is um, just set it to only notify me if it's a new issue for a release or if the impact level has changed. So if it goes from a one to a two, uh, which is caused by uh, passing some threshold and a number of crashes within a time period, uh, then email me. But if it's you know, just a few crashes, and but otherwise relatively stable, then I can ignore it. Yeah, when something goes from say a one to a two, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that's nice. We'll we'll see where that's going. Yeah. And then uh, as it hits into the the fours and fives, and you then you know, oh, I gotta get this on my work plan to look at this pretty quickly. Yeah. And and again, that's probably and you know, for some people, that's that's more of an issue of volume. Uh, so if you're if you're working on apps like we said before, millions of users, then level four and level five are you know not that hard to get to. Uh, but if you're working on an app that only has you know a few thousand or even a few hundred users, then you know that you know a few dozen instances of crash may be a lot more significant. You know, level one might be enough to warrant uh, some focused attention yeah. yeah i'm really surprised that it's not like relativistic at this point to like the number of sessions or something to determine the crash level but i don't know yeah, that definitely and maybe it's possible but it would definitely be nice to be able to to tweak that you know i you know we all hope that we get to that millions of users point with with an app but you know some apps are really not intended for a large audience yeah now, you know related to you know dealing with issues uh, that come from the crash reporter you can actually integrate with third-party issue tracking systems so when a crash comes in you can have it automatically log a ticket in your Jira or uh, Trello you know, any, any number of, of ticketing systems so that can be nice to tie back to your workflow and get into you know, the QAQ or to try and reproduce or uh, track it uh, for the developers. Yeah, as long as you're not going to spam your issue logging system with a lot of yeah. garbage. I suspect that has some of the same features as the email notifications, where it won't create duplicates of the issue, at least not for uh, a single release. Uh, but yeah, the, I I have not integrated with the Crashlytics with the issue tracking system, but. I can definitely see where it would be nice on the team with a fairly formal process for QA and uh, issue prioritization. And that's assuming that your issue tracking system is actually accessible from the outside world. Yeah, yeah you definitely. I don't know if it uses a webhook or, or what, probably a webhook. But yeah, it that definitely be an issue. I'm sure you can integrate with Slack as well. Uh, so that's another way you can. Uh, spam yourself 
<laughs> if you really want to. That one might be kind of fun. I don't know. It seems like everything that would be bad these days. So. It depends on how bad of a programmer you are, Argo. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, I just got a lot of users, man. <laughs> I think that covers a lot of the the main topics on crash logging that uh, we wanted to include. There's, you know, maybe some considerations if you're going to integrate a tool, whether it's Crashlytics or some other tool. You know, you want to understand that not all crashes are in your control so you know sometimes it is apple's fault or some third-party library you know i without calling uh the third party out by name uh, a lot of on one app a lot of the crashes that i would see came from this closed source third-party library which adds a little bit more fuel to the argument that you should uh limit the number of external dependencies you have well that's that's a whole separate topic and we'll get to that in another show (laughs) uh so are we done or do we want to talk about something else we're definitely going to be following this up with with more topics yeah so this is a strange coincidence you guys but i just got uh like 10 alerts from my production servers (laughs) that something's going on i guess you gotta go that's yeah so i think that's about all the time we have this left this week uh, so why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter, and I'm at Sam Quarter. I'm at Alex Argo, and you can find the podcast at Shared Inst. Uh, join us in Slack or at chat.sharedinstance.com, and feel free to send in some tips. Uh, and we'll be back next week. Yep. Happy happy crash hunting. Yeah, I'm just going to probably restart some service. No big deal. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yep. All right. Later. See you. Later.